Pastor John told me in confidence the real reason he's not here is he's tired of y'all and he wants a day off. So, just kidding. Okay, yeah. Wow, we're just putting that right up there right now. I didn't get time to segue into this. Hi, we're going to, once again, I get to be the bad guy at Frontline Bible Church. So this is just kind of what I do. I've noticed it's okay because I'm used to being the one that nobody likes. You can ask my wife. Literally, when people were mad at me when I was uh, pastoring at Door Baptist, they would still go talk to my wife about how much they can't stand me and how I'm the problem, not her. And my wife's like, you know, I stand behind him, right? Like, anyway. So a couple things. Um, one, yeah, I'm preaching today. This was a last-minute thing. I would appreciate your prayers through the service because a few things. One, um, I'm working a lot right now. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, in my department's got surgery, so I'm working six days a week, open to close at the dealer. Um, I think I clocked in about 67 hours this last week, and I'm at, I'm at work yesterday, and it's kind of going slow, and I'm just enjoying my cup of joe, and, I, and John texts me, hey man, can I call you real quick? And like Leo was saying before this, him and I were talking, normally I would be put, just kind of put it off until I'm out of work or whatever, but I also had this gut feeling I should call him. So I call him, and then he tells me he has a positive test. Oddly enough, Tuesday, him and I had breakfast before I went to work, and he was talking about, hey, you know, I'm glad you're here, so that way I can call you in if I ever need you. Since you were a pastor before, you probably have sermons you can use. I was like, yep. Um, little did I know that he was foreseeing something. Uh, so oddly enough, I was going to pull an old sermon out that I did, but he talked about me talking about this, later on in January. And the reason why I'm talking about it today is because actually uh, on the Church Split, which is my podcast that we do, um, me and my buddy, we just recently filmed an episode about this very topic, and I already had notes, and John's like, oh, that's a really great idea. I'm like, yeah, all I have to do is rearrange them for a sermon, and we're good. So uh, that's what I did, and then work got crazy busy, so I was putting this together while working. So hope I didn't mess up anyone's paperwork for their car deals. So... Anyway, um, with that being said, guys, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Romans chapter 10. We'll get there in a minute. Today, I'm not continuing our Peter series because, honestly, this has been something that's been on my heart a lot the last couple years, and probably the last five years, but even more so presently in my life. So as I mentioned before, I do this little podcast thing, and somebody we were associated with in the, in the realm of Christian podcasts— uh, resigned the faith. He left the faith. Somebody might say he went apostate, whatever you want to call it. He left the faith. And um, this person, what his whole ministry was exposing abuse in churches. It was Christians keeping accountable other Christians. So we all stood behind him, but then come to find out, now he left the faith. So we did an episode talking about his reasons why he left the faith, which is essentially, if the gospel's true, why is there abuse in churches? Okay, that's the, that's the short version. And of course, the Christian answer to that is because we're sinners. But I made some comments about how I am also tired of people hiding behind victims and victim culture and the narrative that we can't get over things as a society and as people and individuals who may have experienced abuse. So let me just take a quick poll of the room. How many of you have known somebody or have experienced abuse or oppression yourself or somebody else? Okay, most everybody, right? You know somebody or you've experienced it yourself. So if this sermon is triggering to you and upsets you, or you're already uncomfortable, you're the one who needs to listen. Straight up. 
you're going to need to listen to what we're about to talk about. Because victimhood culture that we're seeing rise in churches across America has got to go. It's got to go. Because it's anti-gospel. Notice all those references up there? We're going to them. Y'all, I hope you brought your lunch. All right. So I, too, have experienced abuse, which I'll get to here in a minute. But recently, like I said, we got in a bit of heat. So today, I want to make sure I am clear. I am not minimizing the pain of abuse. I'm not a pain, uh, uh, minimizing the pain of oppression. But rather, that we must not buy the narrative today that being a victim means you cannot move on. That you can't go on with your life. That abuse ruins your entire life. And that abusers are also beyond redemption. That is anti-gospel and anti-biblical. As we discuss victim culture, let me also address to you why I think Christians need to truly think about the problem we have here. Um, after I made my statements, and I made it in a, my classic ranting style with uh, very much all of the tact you could imagine that I always carry. The Miley Cyrus song, I Came In Like a Wrecking Ball, comes to mind. That's usually my approach. Um, so, uh, anyway. But the point is here. What, so I had, this, I had somebody message me, and they went, so your comments, uh, would you really say that somebody needs to forgive their abuser? And I said, absolutely. And then they were like, Jesus is enough to heal. I would never tell someone they need to forgive their abuser. And I was like, if Jesus is enough to heal, then you need to also obey Jesus, which is, if you don't forgive others, he also what? Won't forgive you. Right? These are the words of Christ, okay? Don't get mad at me. You're in church. I'm talking about Jesus here. All right? So, and then this person went on to talk about how, you know, as a victim of, of abuse herself, she has to relive her trauma every single day, and nobody should tell them to move on. And I'm telling you guys, that's anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. And let me explain to you as we go forward. So when I refer to victim culture, did I have that as a slide up here? No? Okay, we're going to go back. Very bare minimum slides here, people. Um, what is the victim culture? What is this? So what I'm talking about here is there's a difference between being a victim and a victim culture. Okay? There's a difference. Some people, who, although who are victims, might associate with victim culture, and some people who've never been a victim of anything might associate with victim culture. Okay? So I'm talking about a Western world problem. I'm talking about something culturally relevant today. So what this is, victim culture is quintessentially exemplified in what we call the microaggression or safe space culture. That anything that happens that offends me is a problem, and therefore it's outrage. Right? Also, many of us know this as cancel culture, right? So if you say something I don't like, I'm shutting you down. And this can be a real problem. It has a tendency to take victims and keep them as victims. It takes victims and keeps them as victims rather than taking victims and lifting them up to become victors. Instead, keep telling the world how you're oppressed. Keep telling the world how you've been hurt and how you can't move on because the world is so unjust that you will never move forward. It also has a strange empowering element, too. People who are now victims can get away with not taking responsibility in their own life. Well, 
I, the reason why I don't work is because of everything I've been through. Oh, the reason why I treat my family horribly is because that's what my father did. Oh, I don't need to be uh, responsible for my emotional state because, man, if you know what I've been through, you'd understand. Are these all familiar statements to you or similar statements? I've heard a lot of this in my life. So what happens is that we now have given so much power to someone who is a victim that they are the unquestionable authority in all things related to pain and suffering and even more so other things. Because how can you dare speak up to somebody? It's what we call shame, a shame argument, right? Or, and it's weird, like, hey, man, I don't think that's great. Well, are you minimizing my experience? No, I'm just saying I think what your behavior is is wrong. You guys see the issue? And it's a weird empowering thing. So in social justice, social justice movements today, it is also this very victimhood culture that allows for things like we've seen, riots, burnings, things like that. We've all seen also the angry feminist online, right? <laughs> right, we've all seen it. So it allows people to be unhinged and not take responsibility for their behavior, which is ironic because those that, they don't take responsibility for their behavior, yet they're mad at other people for not taking responsibility for their behavior. Huh? So, let's talk about this. It is of no surprise to you that I am, maybe, maybe some of you guys know this, I don't preach about this often, I don't bring up my personal life very often. I was actually up late last night trying to figure out what I wanted to tell you this morning. I am a victim of abuse. And I don't like to say victim of abuse, I'd rather say I've experienced abuse, because I'm a victim of nothing, <laughs> okay? What I have experienced abuse, let me kind of give you some summaries, all right? I have, a, um, in a daycare, Growing up, I experienced sexual abuse. And then, at home, my home was extremely divided. Uh, I held my mom down at age 14 while she was arrested by officers and held off to jail. My, I watched my father load a revolver and lock himself in a room about ready to blow his head off as my sister ple pled for his life on the other side of the door. I have, before church, received a punch right in the face while being simultaneously grabbed in the throat. And at age 16, I finally snapped and I defended myself and I gave my own father two black eyes, a broken nose, a concussion, a sliced cheek, and a bruised rib. We lived in the same house for two weeks and didn't say a word to each other after that. I watched as my brother was fed plain oatmeal every single day while my mom would go out of her way to make steak dinner for everybody else. There's a lot of things I've experienced, and I'm not even scraping the surface here, guys. I've experienced a lot of horrible things. And you know what happened to me? I bought into victim culture. I went, nope, you know what? After everything I've been through, then I went to church. My church was legalistic, judgmental, put me down. I couldn't sneeze without them saying I did something wrong. So I was like, all right, cool. Y'all have no grace. You want to see a rebel? I'll show you a rebel. Mom, dad, you want to act this way? Let me show you what it's like when I act just as bad. And so what would happen is that they would reach intensity and I'd reach intensity. And I felt justified because I said, with what I've been through, I get to do this. Who are you to tell me? Of course, over time, I made an absolute wreck of my life because you can only live that way for so long before you hit rock bottom and you have to choose. Is rock bottom going to be the foundation I build my life? Or am I just going to hang out here for a while? And I chose to turn my life over to God at age 17. And then what's funny is that the grace that came in, the change in nature. When people tell me the gospel, like the, that person I mentioned with the podcast, doesn't change lives, I take that personally because <laughs> the gospel changed mine. 
So what happened is when all plates and things were flying and anger and hatred and the worst things I've ever heard people say to an adopted child, like, I hate you, I wish we never adopted you, I wish we were never here, taking them, literally throwing them out in the middle of a blizzard and me carrying them inside, frozen, cold, after he'd been out there for a while. They would flip out, and I had this overwhelming peace. And I would just speak a word of grace into the room of Jesus Christ, and you want to talk about awkwardly silent. And of course, you can see the looks on the face. What happened to the kid who would explode on us? Because at 4 a.m., I was used to waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. with my brother being dragged out of the bed and beaten. And then I'd run down there and defend him. Even after an intense surgery I had, I had to defend my brother physically. And then we have people today who say the gospel doesn't work. And I can tell you right now, I've looked my abusers in the eye, seen them repent of their sin. I have seen the gospel change my life. And guys, that's what I want to talk about today. Victim culture that we're seeing creep in. Of course, abusers are bad. I don't think we need to clarify that, right? Abuse is bad. Do we agree? Cool. Now let's talk about the flip side of the coin of victimhood culture. All right, let's go in. All right, so what the gospel offers. What is the gospel and what does it offer? A couple things here. The gospel, if you go to Romans chapter 10, we're going to start at verse chapter 8, okay? Verse chapter 8. The gospel is this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who calls upon the name of the Lord and will be saved? Everyone. So if you are a victim or maybe you've abused, maybe you've done horrible things in your life, the Lord saves both of you. Everyone. Okay? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we don't want to minimize that in our churches by buying into this collective culture idea of we are all victims of something. I'm sure you've all heard that maybe the term intersectionality. It's like, well, if you're a straight white male, you, you, know, you get the most privileged, so you should be the most apologetic. And then if you're like a gay white male, you're a little above that. And then, you know, maybe if you're black and you're female, you're over here. And then they all intersect. And depending where you're at on this chart is where you are in privilege. And it's funny because it's this idea of trying to get rid of racism and classism and sexism and all that. But do you know what you just did when you did that? You divided people up by race, Jew or Greek, by male or female, by all sorts of different things. And ironically, you contradicted yourself. See the problem? The gospel equalizes all of us on the same playing field. Sinners needing saved. And that's beautiful. And we don't want to minimize that. So, it tells us that we are sinners and under condemnation, but God is good and paid a ransom for our sins. So, it gives us morality. It tells us that where we did wrong and what we did right, but we are under condemnation, so we need a Savior. So, the gospel gives us a sense of morality. 
And then it tells us that we are valuable enough for Christ to die. It gives us hope of a healer and someone who can make all things new. It gives us hope. That's what the gospel does. So, but let me tell you why this is anti um, this is anti-gospel. The gospel is able to show us the right and wrong and is able to give us hope for something greater than ourselves, but victimhood culture speaks directly against this. What it says that the only person who deserves condemnation is the abuser or the oppressor, that there is sin far worse and unredeemable than your own. It's a skewed morality. It's they are worse than me. And I'm telling you right now, guys, if you worry about your sin as much as you worry about everyone else's, your life will already get better. Okay? <laughs> it says that you're, also it says in a victim culture that you're damaged goods. I don't know about you guys, but I am an image bearer of God. I am created in his image. I am not damaged goods. And neither are you. Don't buy it. You are not broken and unable to pull yourself up from the ashes of brokenness. You are above that because God did that for you when he died on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he said you were valuable enough. One of the biggest things I have issue with is that we say all the time, like, well, we just don't deserve it. If you're created in his image and you are his child, what would you do for you to save your children? Would they be worth it? Absolutely. God, that's how he looks at our, his creation. And plus, if all we say is you're damaged goods and you're broken and unable to pull yourself up from the pits of despair, let me ask you something today. How is one ever to get past their PTSD, their hurt, and their suffering with such a message? They're not. They're going to continue in depression and anxiety and with no ability to move on. How awful of a message is that? I have a friend of mine. I've become good friends with him. He's a veteran, and he, I, can't, I won't mention his kill count. He recently told me. And he suffers from PTSD, and he's told me a lot of stuff. And he, on Veterans Day, he had nine veterans call him that were suicidal this last week. And you know what he was telling them about? The gospel, the hope. But if you tell people that they're just broken and beyond repair, they will never lift up. They will never move forward. But we have an eternal hope. So it says also, and this is, where, this is where things get dicey in our culture today. It also says that an abuser or an oppressor is beyond salvation. That they don't deserve it. That they, they're beyond salvation, they're beyond redemption or repentance, and that they, they deserve to rot in hell and belong to, in prison for all eternity. There's no hope, purely condemnation. Have any of you guys worked in a jail or prison ministry? No? Andrew? You? I don't know your name. Hi, how are you? If you've ever worked there, you'll know that these people just took a different, usually took a different turn after a lot of suffering in their own life. And they also need hope. There's one gentleman uh, that wrote my church when I was pastoring at Door. And he sent a bunch of letters out to the churches. And I was the only one who responded. And we wrote each other for two years before we met. <laughs> and he said that that gave him hope. I'm sending him, he's asking Bible questions, I'm responding. People who hurt people are usually just hurt people. And they need the gospel too. And again, who was Paul 
a murderer, an oppressor, a persecutor. And yet he was saved, turned his life around, encouraged the church probably more than any human being has, and then died a martyr's death. And we want to tell people today in our churches that, man, you're right. You're just broken and beyond repair. I'll love you just where you're at instead of encouraging them to move forward. And that looks differently. You might need to see a counselor. You might need it. This can take years, okay? It can take years. But we must not buy the narrative. It says, again, that the abuser is beyond redemption. And let me ask you this. How many people, and if you know statistics, you know criminals oftentimes go back to the crime after they get out, right? But the whole point of the system is what? Reform. But if you're, all you're told is that you're a horrible, awful criminal beyond redemption, let me ask you, why, what purpose do they have to change? The gospel gives them a reason and a purpose. So again, if you're a victim or you've been an oppressor, Either one, you need the gospel because you don't want to buy a skewed morality. Your sin is not greater or worse than somebody else's. We're all equally sinners under condemnation. All equally in need of salvation. Okay? So the gospel is, but here's the issue. The gospel is counterintuitive, right, to us because it goes against our nature to be self-serving and wishing to wallow in our own hurt and afraid to take responsibility for our own lives. It makes it easier to just say it was someone else's fault, right? That's an easy cop-out. Well, if you knew what I've been through, <laughs> it's their fault that I'm more, uh, the way I am. Instead of saying something like, or that I could not control maybe how I got here, but I can control where I go. Seems, seems decent. Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 says this, and you don't have to turn there. You can write it down if you'd like. But he says in Galatians, I mean, not Galatians, Genesis, whoo, Genesis chapter 3. What happened with the blame game back then? Adam, uh, God goes, he said, who told you that you were naked, right? Right after taking to the fruit. Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. What did he do? Played the victim. Is it kind of true? Yeah, sure, she gave it, but you didn't take responsibility for yourself. The gospel is also counterintuitive because it goes against our nature to be vengeful, to be hateful. And vengeance is whose? The Lord's. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, right? Not vengeance is fine, okay? That's not what he says. Vengeance is mine. So the gospel is counterintuitive because it goes against our nature to be vengeful and hateful to those who have hurt us. It's easier to say, I hate you and never want to see you again, isn't it? It's a lot easier to say those words than to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you see already how this has seeped into our churches and our culture? Do you see it as I have seen it? It's a problem. It's a lot harder to look a repentant abuser in the eyes and say, I forgive you and I love you as an image bearer of God. And in all honesty, it's much easier to hate your enemies than to love them. Matthew chapter 5. Do me a favor. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're getting after it this morning, guys. <laughs> because this is something I am passionate about. Is this a... Uh... Ah, there we go. Okay, good. Did I... Sweet. 
All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. And he says this. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate, you know, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, I don't know about you, but I do not like that standard. That's tough. And sometimes that's a daily fight, right? Like, you might be good one day. Like, all right, yep, forgave, move on. And the next day, that little monster creeps, creeps right back up into your mind, and then you're back to being bitter. Sometimes it's a, it's a process, and sometimes it's daily. I think that kind of was Paul was getting at when he's talking about dying to self, and I die daily. That's kind of what he's getting at. Putting my feelings sometimes aside. So the gospel teaches that though the scars remain, because let's be honest, your scars will most of the time remain. Some, some, some are able to move on easier than others, maybe. And maybe one's more traumatic than another, okay? I get that. But the gospel teaches that though the scars remain, we can move on because why? God is big enough. After he was nailed to the cross and beaten and betrayed, those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, fell out of his lips. And you want to tell me that you can't forgive things that happened to you? Think, take a moment to consider that for a moment. Really, digest that. And let's be honest as well. Forgive and forget is not in Scripture. Okay? I don't know where that mantra came from and how that became a Christian mantra, but that's not true. Forgive and forget is not in Scripture. This would both be foolish and naive. I'm not saying that you let somebody who abuses children hang out with children alone. I'm saying that forgiving and being a community uplift and then also protect those and keep, everyone, keep the people protected who could be hurt and keep them accountable and away from temptation, right? I think that's a fair biblical approach there. Seeking justice is also different than seeking vengeance, right? If you're vengeful, that's not good, but seeking justice is a good thing. However, there are times, too, like I've known somebody who was hurt by somebody as a kid and by a family member, and then they were best friends with their family member, but once a family member did something they didn't like, 30 years later, was like, well, I'm going to go, I, that thing you did to me, I'm now going to take you to court, and I'm going to make this big fuss about it. I'm like, you never cared before until this moment because you didn't get your way, and now you want to dig up old skeletons that clearly you were fine with moving on from? after they already repented? You see how that can be a problem too? But again, we buy this thing in our culture, which is just, yeah, you beat them down, beat them down. You know, no one can judge you because of everything you've been through. Just, just hurt them as much as possible because they hurt you. That's not scripture, and that's anti-gospel. And that is not what a church should stand for. A church should always be standing for, for redemption and second chances through Christ. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But let's talk about the dangers of victim culture real quick. So it creates the dangers of never moving on, and it gives people power over others. But it flips the table, okay? 
Let's talk about this. It creates the dangers of never moving on, having people relive and dwell in their trauma rather than looking ahead to hope. Also, it gives people power over others, right? Because if I'm a victim, I can control the situation because who are you to tell me? But here's what's funny about that is uh, I mentioned, I was like, that's messed up. And a friend of mine recently said, well, I'm just glad the power dynamics have shifted, right? Now it's not the abuser in power, it's me. <laughs> that's not the goal. The goal is not power or authority, but truth, goodness, and righteousness. That's the goal. If all it is about who has power over who and who gets to leverage somebody else, that's not the gospel, guys, and that's not a Christian worldview. And we're a church, and we should be pushing Christian worldviews. Sorry, you can really tell my Baptist side is coming out. I'm all fire and brimstone up here. But I think it's worth it. I think it's good. Because it should never be about that. Victimhood is now even sought after. Have you noticed that in our culture? People trying to find things that have oppressed them, things that have hurt them in the past, things that, oh, no, this is how I've been abused. This happened. Because why? It creates status like a currency. Um, I heard a man recently say this, when victimhood becomes currency, expect there to be counterfeits. Ooh. And what happened? I'm going to use a, a pop culture reference. How many of you guys remember what happened with Jesse Smollett? No? A guy who was like, oh no, I was attacked by white supremacists. There was a noose, there was this, there was that. And come to find out, he paid a bunch of actors and it was all a sham. And that's because we have made victimhood a currency. It has nothing to do with race, it has, uh, it, with this, it has nothing to do with sex, it has nothing to do with sexuality even. It's just when you turn something into a currency, it becomes a problem. And then you can expect there to be counterfeits. Do me a favor and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're bouncing around today, guys. I'm going to try to get us out on time. Tell me to stop preaching so hard and just like start waving a flag. We get the point, move to the next. <laughs> That's why I need, uh, Micah, next time you should get a sign that's like, move on. Move on, we get it. Move on, we get it. I told you I'd mention, you said I wouldn't. I said I wouldn't mention you. You said I would. Now I did. So you win. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Notice Paul's words here to the letter of Corinth, to the Corinths. Corinth. Guys, the Corinthians were a mess, okay? These people were a mess. If you ever think your church is imperfect, is, has problems, you're not the church of Corinth, okay? All right, so notice what Paul says. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. That's awesome. There's hope right there. So that no fault may be found by our, our own ministry. But as servants of God, we command ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness to the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well known as undying. And behold, we live as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making Many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Notice how he's talking like, we've been beaten, but look at the hope. Don't go down that path. 
And I'm asking you guys today at Frontline Bible Church, if you've experienced suffering, don't go down that path. Because what, look what he says in verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as children when you widen your hearts also. And then he goes on and continues about not being unequally yoked. You know why? Because the Corinthians are playing the victim here. Like, oh, are you restricting us because you won't let us just have sex with whoever we want? And he goes, no. You are restricted by your own affections. Don't play the victim. And even if you are a victim, don't play the victim because you're just going to wallow in it. You can talk about it. Confront it. I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm just saying don't wallow in it because then you'll get stuck. So, oh, there's that. So Bible versus victim culture. Let's talk about this. So first off, victimhood culture commits the sin of partiality. In James chapter 2, I, won't, I don't have time to read it now, but he talks about how we should show no partiality. He talks about the class of the rich, right? If you treat the one who is rich better than the poor, what have you done? Well, we're going to do, do the same thing if we're not careful that we're going to treat people who have been victims greater than those who are not. And uh, I've, my best friend, Brian, uh, my two best friends, Andrew and Brian, uh, they have a rivalry whenever I say my best friend, so whatever. Andrew, you're here. What was that Brian's thing? That's Brian. You're secure? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, but one of the things with Brian, uh, with Brian is that he, they talk about their son, and the people will be like, oh, your son has special needs, and he's like, I don't like to talk about it that way because I want my child is treated like a human. As a victim, maybe we just want to be treated as normal people, and maybe that's what we should want if you've experienced abuse. So as a church, we shouldn't be showing partiality because of different things with different people. We should be consistent in truth. And there's, that's freeing. What did Jesus say? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's a powerful thing. So we have to be careful. Don't create a new class to show partiality. Don't treat them differently. You can't, you know, well, we can't say that to them because they're a victim. You aren't to show partiality in the gospel with classes, sex, people, group. Truth has no bias. Okay? Next is that we are to forgive the sinner. Jesus said to forgive 70 times 7. If, I don't, if you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. In Galatians chapter 6, though, he says that if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should go restore him, not cast him out. Restore. Restore him in spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's wisdom, isn't it? Go, hey, confront the bad thing. Restore them, but don't be tempted. Let those who are spiritual, the elders, do it. Luke chapter 17, verse 3 through 4 says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's not popular today either, by the way, to rebuke your brother. But it's necessary. Some of my best growth has been when my friends looked at me in the eyes and told me, Will, you're being a butt. <laughs> okay? You need friends that do that. Okay? Andrew's back there. He'll tell you all about it. But he has all his Irish sass, and I just don't have time for that right now. Anyway. Um, also, guys, reality is suffering is to be expected. This is life, and we live in a fallen world with sin. Suffering's expected. 
And that's not fun. But I'm telling you right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're in 2 Corinthians, it'll go to chapter 4 real fast. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power. This is verse 7, sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have the treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know what that means? That your suffering you can use to bring people to him. You know, in Genesis said what mankind meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, God can repair that which is broken. God can use evil and bring redemption from it. He's that big. So he can use your suffering to do that. How awesome. Do you know this is what gave me hope when I was suffering? Was God can use this. And you know what's funny is how God has used that in my life so much. I keep getting put in ministries where I work with people who have been abused and afflicted. And it's just one of those weird things of like, oh, I guess we're using this today. You can give somebody else hope. Romans chapter 8, we don't have time for everyone to turn there, but he also says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are, being filled, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You don't have to be beaten down by the world. Whatever you've experienced, you do not need to because you have a hope in Jesus Christ, and he is big enough. You just need to believe. And you, need to kind of, you might need to do a lot of prayer. You might need to do a lot of focusing on Christ. You might need a lot of counseling, but you can get there. And guys, Paul suffered. My goodness. I mean, in Philippians chapter 1, he literally says, I want you guys, he says, uh, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And this is a man who was stoned, cast out like a corpse, and what did the man do? He got back up, marched back into the city, and preached the gospel. He is a madman, okay? That's what I'm getting at here. So, moving forward. How to overcome victimhood mentality, if you're hurting today. Recognize its benefits. You heard me say that right. Because if you recognize the benefits, then you'll recognize that the benefits of it means that you get to avoid responsibility, you get to get attention and validation, and you get to avoid risk, right? If you just sit there, there's no risk involved. But also be okay with not identifying as a victim. Be okay with that. Take responsibility for what you can. We don't have, a, sometimes people are terrible. We don't have, we can't take responsibility for that. What people do is what they do. But acknowledge the hurt, stare in the void, but pick up your cross and follow Christ. Because remember, your suffering advances the gospel. And agree with God on what sin is, Okay which means don't show partiality. And of course, definitely find your true identity in Jesus Christ because you are fearfully and wonderfully made for a purpose. And of course, forgive. In closing, I just want to have a few things I wanted to read real fast. I have 
30 seconds. So, brothers, do n- I do not consider it that I have made it my own, but w- this one thing I do, notice what Paul says here, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Straining, meaning it's not easy. Forgetting that which lies behind. You know what, that's actually pretty inclusive. That means good and bad. You get, don't get to sit there and revel in the victories of the past, too. Keep moving forward, straining forward. He goes, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.17 says this, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And then back in Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5 says this, Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Oh, I love this verse. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Many people have asked me, Will, wouldn't you have changed everything you've experienced in your life? To have a healthier home and healthier upbringing. I will say I would change the areas where I hurt people. Because I hurt people. I was not a good person. (laughs) But... I would not change the suffering I've experienced in my life for anything. If I could, I'd go back into the same home with the same people and do it all over again. Why? Because it produced endurance, it produced character, which produced a hope. And maybe that's what you need to understand today. Maybe don't wallow in that. Maybe you understand it, look at it and go, this is producing character. And the verse that got me through most everything in my life, is 1 Peter 5.10. And I'm going to ask you guys, if you are in the habit of writing things down, if you like to highlight, whatever, 1 Peter 5.10. This verse is something I've quoted to myself many, many times. Uh, 1 Peter 5.10 says this. Of course, Pastor John might be talking about this next week for all I know. And after you have suffered a little while, this life is temporary, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Not in this Calvinistic kind of way, but in a way where that God loves us so much that he gives us the free will to make decisions. And because of those decisions, we might suffer for evil in this world. But through that, he can repair that which is broken. God loves us enough to not control our every, will, our every move. But he also loves us enough to give us a hope. So finally, as C.S. Lewis once said, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect.
And I think that is a great way to put and frame your suffering. Because remember, guys, that after you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And as for this reason, we know that victim culture today and victimhood mentality only serves to destroy. It does not restore. It's anti-gospel. But if you want things to get better, you must put your identity in Jesus Christ and his work. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank for this day, God. We thank for this time you've given us to just come here, God, and just dig into your word a little bit. Lord, I pray for us here. Maybe some of us have experienced some horrible suffering in our lives. God, I pray that you'll help us lean into you so that you can fix that which is broken, that you can bring beauty from the ashes. Lord, I pray that if someone here today is struggling with that, that that today will be the day that they put their faith and trust in you, and they strain forward to that hope that is only in you. God, I pray that for this church. I am thankful for everyone here. Lord, I pray that today will be the day, if someone does not know you, that they come to salvation and put their eternal hope in you. And Lord, I pray you'll give us safe travels home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.